I got um. I don't know how to love. Hi, Anthony. You're really excited about this. I can tell. I'm so excited. So, what do Hal Prince, Bette Midler, Grand Rights Case Law, and the 2021 insurrection on the U.S. Capitol have in common? Man, you lost me at the insurrection. <laughs> Well, find out today on (laughs) We Don't Know How to Love Him. So, Anthony, let's talk to our listeners about what we hope the schedule of the upcoming podcast will be and a little bit about um, the scheduling so far. Yes, great idea. Um, So, you know, first of all, we're doing this as a hobby. We both have day jobs, uh, but we do want to be good podcasters um, and come out regularly. Sometimes life happens and life happened in a big way. These last couple of months, I had a major life change and moved across the country. And I've just been lazy. (laughs) Well, hardly. But um, now I'm getting settled and we hope to get back onto a more regular schedule. Absolutely. And we want to share with you what our hope is for the future of the podcast. So we want to cover a show a month. And so our hope is that within the same month, we will have an episode that is on the history or the making of that show. And then we'll have our recap reaction episode in that same month. And when we do our part one, the history or the making of the show, we'll give you a sense of when the recap episode will be coming out so that you know how much time you have to watch that show and prepare for the re- for the recap. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Adam, do you know what time it is? 12.06. <laughs> it's time for your favorite segment. When the show ends. <laughs> <laughs> I call it Android Weber News, but you came up with the term... Weber World. Cheekily named it Weber World. Yes, it's time for Weber World. Dun, 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 dun. Are you ready to hear what's going on in Andrew Lloyd Weber World? I am so ready. So, since we last talked, um, Andrew has been on the show, Who Do You Think You Are? The British version, which is kind of like... Um, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. What's that show? It's it's like Finding Your Roots on PBS here in the States. Oh, okay. okay yeah. Okay. And who does he think he is? Well, I've asked the question many times. Yes, it is a provocative question. Um, I don't know. I didn't see the episode, but what they told him was that um, he is the descendant of some showbiz folks. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. Show business runs in his family. So his six times great uncle... Alexis Magito was a renowned cellist and composer. Mm. Um, six of his sonatas are still in existence, like the printed music you can see. Um, oh. And Andrew's brother, Julian Lloyd Webber, is also a well-known cellist. So, um, Yes, his father. His father was a keyboardist and composer, and his brother is the cellist. Okay. Well, 
we somehow did not study his great, 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 great <laughs> uncle when I was in the conservatory. But to be no. fair, we also didn't study Andrew Lloyd Webber when I was <laughs> in the conservatory. So there's been some real erasure yeah. of his family and my conservatory training. Well, okay. Well, not only that, but it gets more exciting for me. Um, the Megiddo family had become known as fairground showmen, circus entertainers, and musicians. A, no- a member of that family, Peter Megiddo, is thought to have been the first circus master in Holland. Oh, wow. Those are my people. Oh, nice. Um, he was a rope dancer, oh. and he sometimes performed in skates. Oh, Which, okay. you know what that made me think of. Can I roll a skate? (laughs) Oh, no, that's not what it made you think of. (laughs) That's what it made me think of. That's what it made you think of. (laughs) Made you think of your favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Starlight Express. Not my favorite. Listeners, if if you go to our Instagram, you can see my review of Starlight Express that I wrote. Um, Oh. I forgot about that. Yeah. Definitely check it out. Yeah, not my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber mm. musical, but um, certainly a very uh, interesting one. Was that musical his way of finding his roots? Maybe. I mean, obviously it, it runs in the family, but it skips five generations. <laughs> it's one of those things that's famously known. Yeah, it's a recessive gene. <laughs> it receded way back. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about that. Also some business news. The Really Useful Group uh, announced that they have hired Neil Marin as a consultant. Neil Marin and his late partner, Craig Zayden, they produced all those big TV live musicals, including Jesus Christ oh. Superstar, um, The Sound of Music. Sound of Music. Yes. Uh, the, they've done movies, Chicago and Hairspray. They did The Gypsy with Bette Midler. Um, the brand which I just watched by the way last weekend had you seen it before no not that version what do you think of it um I don't know no comment I think I think they could probably make a better one okay um I've still never seen that one um they did the brandy and Whitney Houston Cinderella oh, oh the ba- the greatest yeah and the life with Judy Garland me and my shadows with Judy Davis I'm also amazed that you didn't say like the burned it up Peter Cinderella. Well, it's that's how I think of it, but <laughs> <laughs> but for the but for the everyday listener, no, I do think of it as the Brandy and Whitney Houston Cinderella. But Bernadette has a star-turning performance as the Wicked Stepmother. She does singing some Rogers and Hart. Anyway. Yes, yes, but singing it masterfully. Um, so anyway, he's joining Really Useful, which is Andrew's company that puts on all his shows and. Uh, His role will be to help identify and develop new opportunities for Lloyd Webber's IP across North America, uh, Mm. including mining talent and building new relationships with film companies, networks, streamers, dance companies, and new media. Wow. So we might be getting more Lloyd Webber in the future. More Lloyd Webber. Everything is IP these days, huh? It is. Everything's coming up IP. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if there's going to be an actual Lloyd Webber world as like an annex to Disney at some point. Oh my God. Like a Dollywood. <laughs> yes. If they call it Webber world, do you think we'll get residuals or whatever the word oh, is? We better. We better. <laughs> we better. Do you think they'll be reaching out to us sometime soon? What's his name again? 
Craig Zayden. Do you think Craig Zayden will be no, reaching I'm out sorry. to us? No, I'm sorry. Not Craig Zayden, Neil Marin. Do you think Neil Marin will be reaching out to us? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, they could <laughs> they could hologram me. I'd sell my my AI to them. <laughs> they could make like an Anthony introduces Andrew Lloyd Webber. That would be your dream. <laughs> That'd be your dream. Do you think they'll be reaching out to us as like a collaboration or as like a cease and desist? Remains to be seen. <laughs> what if they split us? What if one oh, of us gets no. one and one of us gets the other? If they're smart, they would have us be like um Captain and Tennille. <laughs> if they're smart, they'd have it be a collaboration. I think if they're wise. Yeah. Yes, yes, I hope so. Um one curiosity that I found in this story is that Lloyd Webber met Marin and Zayden back in the 1970s when they created a nightclub act for him and Tim Rice upon the release of the original concept album of Evita. Really? Yeah. It's not clear. I don't have any other details. I don't know if they were in the act, if they were performing the act, or if it was an act on their material with other performers. I'm not sure. Yeah, I was going to say, Lloyd Webber, is he known as a performer, or is he known as someone who like performs his own work sometimes? Not to me, he isn't. Huh. Um, huh. But and We know we, Tim Rice is, though. We learned that Tim Rice was the original pharaoh and joseph so famously yeah could have been andy at the piano and tim at the mic could have been they're like a they're like a past version of pasek and paul yeah one show that probably is not going to get remade in anytime soon is aspects of love oh no why not well uh, this show had it for its first major revival since it debuted in 1989 uh, in London this past spring or summer. Um, it was supposed to run until November, uh, but by the time our listeners hear this, it will have closed. <laughs> well, that's um, sad. well, I don't know if it's so sad when you hear about this show. So I don't know much about this show. I've not seen it. I know a few of the songs. Um the production itself actually got quite good reviews, but it sounds like what sank this show is the story. Mm. The Independence two out of five star review said, given that Andrew Lloyd Webber's back catalog includes musicals about Randy trains and a feline death cult. <laughs> it's kind of surprising <laughs> that his weirdest show ever is about the relatively normal subject of love affairs in rural France. But with its skin-crawlingly uncomfortable age-gap romances, Aspects of Love still finds plenty of ways to disconcert an audience. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of the story, but as I understand it, uh, it reminds me a little bit of Woody Allen's real life. So um, the Evening Standard in their review said, It's hard to see why Andrew Lloyd Webber thought this creepy and downright silly chamber musical was a good idea in 1989, let alone ripe for revival now. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's time to put that one out to pasture. Sounds like it. Where do the cats yeah. go at the end of uh at the end of Heavy cats? Side Layer. Maybe it's time to put this show to the have Heavy Side Layer? Yes. <laughs> I think that's right. Are you proud of me for that yes. reference? Yeah, great reference. Thank you. I'm Thank so you. proud. <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. That's a great segue too, because there is going to be a new production of cats coming to New York City. Really? And it is inspired by New York City's ballroom scene. <gasps> oh, well, that sounds kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm very interested in this. 
Uh, it's going to be part of the inaugural season at the Perlman Performing Arts Center, which is at the World Trade Center site. So it's off-Broadway. Off-Broadway. I don't even think Andrew has anything to do with this production other than obviously licensing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to start in June 2024. Uh, okay. It's the first major staging to dramatically depart from the original production. Which ran for 85 years. <laughs> something something <laughs> like that. Certainly seems to have nine lives. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so bad. Um, <laughs> I kind of liked it. Oh, thanks. The The show is directed by Jalen Levingston and Bill Rauch, and the choreography is by the season two winner of Legendary, which is a ballroom competition show, um, Arturo Lyons, and Vogue dancer Omari Wiles. Oh, okay. Well, that can yeah, be interesting. So- yeah, sounds like it has some good talent behind it, and I'm curious to see what they do with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's Here Lies Love meets Cats. <laughs> exactly. And there's also a revival coming of Sunset Boulevard to London. This is an Andrew Lloyd Webber production. It's going to star Nicole Scherzinger of Pussycat Dolls playing Norman Desmond. wonder what Patti LuPone thinks about that. I don't even think she cares if she even knows <laughs> it's coming. Probably not. Um, I think Andrew, like, loves Nicole Scherzinger, though. He does. I think that his favorite version of memory, if memory serves, <laughs> is, <laughs> is sung by Nicole. Or he really likes it, yeah. at least. Yeah. I think, I think I've heard that, too. He seems to be a big fan. Uh, she was Grizabella in the 2014 revival of Cats. Um, so that's going to open um, in September on the West End. It's going to run into January. And I am going to London in November, so I might try to see that. Ooh, London listeners, meet up with Anthony. <laughs> London meetup for our fans. <laughs> um, I'm so fascinated by how we're casting in Sunset Boulevard these days, because mm-hmm. back when the movie came out, Gloria Swanson was, for all intents and purposes, I has been, which I hate that word, but that was Hollywood in the 1950s. She was over 40, right. so she was cast aside. And there wasn't the same sort of like beauty, sort of skin preservation. I don't know what I even want to call this, but sort of the beauty industry wasn't as powerful back then either. And so we have We actresses, aged differently. We aged differently. One might say more naturally back then. Yeah. Um, and so we have actresses now playing Norma who... While age-appropriate technically, I feel like look like they could be playing Betty sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, my first instinct hearing that was, oh, she's too young. But of course, as you just pointed out, she's not that far off from Gloria Swanson's age in the original. No. So it's a complicated, I think it's complicated casting. I think that shows a complicated show to cast. Yeah, it's interesting. Um yeah, I think I'm going to go see that. I have no doubt. <laughs> you're like, I know you're going to go see it. <laughs> you didn't know. I somehow didn't get invited to this. Wow. Well, you're invited. I thought you'd have to work. <laughs> Hopefully I will. I know you don't get a lot of time off. That's true. It's true. I just decided in the last like week. So Good, good for you. Okay, Adam. Lastly today... Did you know that Andrew Lloyd Webber was an entire category on Jeopardy recently? I had no idea. No one told me. No one told you? (laughs) No. Well, 
Fear not, because I have the questions right here. So we're going to play a little Jeopardy. Oh, wow. We'll see how much money I could make. Was this single or double Jeopardy round? I don't know. It's a 200. Okay. 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 Yeah. So we're going to start with Andrew Lloyd Webber for 200. Are you ready? I'm ready. And these these questions were read by Andrew himself. Really? Was he on video? Do you know if he was on video? On video. Wow. I'm going to picture you as Andrew Lloyd Webber right now. I know. I'm not going to do the accent. Okay, I'm not known for my accent work. <laughs> unlike unlike you. me, my famous accent work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's going to be in the first person. Here we go. When my dad listened to the song Heard Here from this show, I asked him, Does this sound like anything else? And he responded, It sounds like $10 million. And then I'm not going to sing, but I'll say the lyrics Midnight, Beep. not a sound from the pavement. Yes. What is memory? Okay, see, the hard part about these questions is the way they're phrased, because they're so long. So the quest, the answer oh, sh- was really this musical. Oh, no. So the question needs to be, the mu- what is the musical? Oh, that was really long. I don't blame myself. So you're negative 200. <laughs> <laughs> That's so mean. I'm sorry. Listen more carefully this time. Oh my god. Okay, fine. For the listeners at home, the answer was, what is Cats? I think that if I were actually in the studio and the screen was up there and Angela Lloyd Webber was saying it. Oh my god. Okay, fine. Next one. The reason I'm saying no is because I watched the actual questions on YouTube and I had the same problem because they are so long. Mm. It's not because I doubt your Angela Lloyd Webber prowess. Well, (laughs) they are so long. The, The questions are so long that you can't keep track of like... What is the question you're okay, asking? Okay, now I'm really, right. I'm ready, I'm ready. All right, you're a negative 200. <laughs> Thanks for reminding us. <laughs> All right, here's Andrew again. One of the twists in Bad Cinderella is that this prince is missing in action when the show opens, so I didn't write any songs for him in Act 1. Beep. Yes? Who is Prince Charming? Yes. Yay. Now now you're positive 200. Yay. Woo. Okay. Here is Andrew Lloyd Webber for 600. And this is very appropriate to today's topic. Jesus Christ Superstar took an unusual approach by framing it through the eyes of this one of Jesus's apostles. Beep. Yes. Who is Judas Iscariot? Ooh, correct. You even got the last name. Of course I did. (laughs) We would have given it... (laughs) We would have given it to you just if you said Judas as well. Well, thank you. Just so you know. Fine. So now you have 800. Okay, I'm doing really well after that first one. Yeah, Start you, out slow. you are. Okay, here's the 800 clue. I am proud to have created the longest running musical on Broadway. It opened in 1988, and after almost 14,000 performances, its chandelier dropped for the last time in 2023. Beep. Adam. What is Phantom of the Opera? That's correct. Yay! How much money do I have now? You now have a thousand. No, I'm sorry. A thousand is next. You have 800 plus 600. 1400. There you go. Good math. Because I have to keep track of my own money in this game. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here it is for 1000. Glenn Close was a marvel to behold singing my song. Singing my song as if we never said goodbye. Playing this silver screen legend in Sunset Boulevard. Beep. 
Adam. Who is Norma Desmond? Correct. Woo! $2,400. I'm rich. In, in Weber dollars. <laughs> Do I get to spend it at Weber World? Uh, yeah, it comes in the form of a gift certificate redeemable at Weber World, but it expires in a year. So okay. Weber World has to be built and opened <laughs> before then, or you can't use I it. I guess I'm rooting for it now. <laughs> well, that was a fun game. Right. I feel pretty good about that. If it weren't for my... Yeah, good job. If it weren't for my, um, I guess, short-term memory <laughs> issues, I would have gotten... I would have swept the category. You would have. It, it was hard. I had trouble with all of them. I was like, what are they asking? I think it was actually easier just me reading it than seeing... Andrew on the screen and there was also like multimedia like they would play clips of the songs and stuff so it was like it was a lot going on your gay little brain was overstimulated (laughs) exactly (laughs) (laughs) all right that's it for this week on Weber World okay that was great I feel like I learned so much (sighs) more than you needed to probably So today, yes, we are talking about what may be considered the first rock opera. The first to call itself that, probably. The first to call itself yeah. rock opera. Yeah. Uh, the famous show, Jesus Christ. Superstar. Superstar. <laughs> and I'm excited to talk about it. There's a bit of history to it. Yeah, and I feel like this is probably, like, one of the most well-known and, like, celebrated shows of Andrews and certainly of Andrew and Tim as a pair. Absolutely. I mean, it's the only one that has had a live action musical on NBC. NBC. Yes. <laughs> so I think it is too. Yeah. And it's also interesting because this was at the time in Andrew and Tim's career when they weren't famous, they weren't as well known right. clearly as they are now. And they still had to kind of figure out financing, figure out the, like, art isn't easy. <laughs> they had to figure out how to um, get their visions made. I've been, like, avoiding reading any history because I want to just be as present with you as possible. You want to hear it from the world-renowned expert. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the Weberologist. Yes. Yes. That would be me. All right. Let's hear it. Okay. So, early history. And as we think about some of these earlier shows, a lot of it is also going to be just about the development of Andrew Lloyd Webber as a creator. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of context to it, I feel. So brace yeah. yourself for a couple of names. Yeah. So prior to Jesus Christ Superstar, Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice hadn't had a show produced in a theater. Right. Am I remembering that correctly from... I think that's true, yeah. Yeah, and so this was kind of the start. When they started out, they needed money. Andrew and Tim needed money. And so... There was a singer from the Joseph album who had a rich friend named Sefton Myers. Um, and Sefton Myers was a theater person. And Sefton Myers is not to be confused with Stefan Myers from okay. um, Saturday Night Live. Oh, I didn't know that was his name. I didn't, but when I Googled Sefton Myers, it was uh-huh. like Stefan. <laughs> it's like, I mean, great character. Right? And maybe, I could see him as an investor in Jesus Christ Superstar if he had if, the money. If anyone was going to invest in Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> it would be Stefan. <laughs> um, so they went to Sefton Myers and they suggested a pop music museum. They're okay. like, they're like, how about we start a pop music museum with Andrew as the curator? Okay. And it would have things like Elvis's guitar in it. 
So kind of like an early um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame almost. Basically, yeah. yeah. And Sefton was like, no. Uh, <laughs> but um, he did, along with his partner David Land, agree to become their managers, paying them £2,000 for their first year okay. in exchange for 25% of anything that Rice and Weber wrote. Oh, boy. And so this was the first time <laughs> they were able to start creating and not have to worry about the immediate like needs for money because right. they had this big lump sum for the year. Well, big. I, I guess I don't totally know what two thousand pounds was back in the sixties, but yeah. you know they it was okay. They were com- they felt comfortable. They felt comfortable, and so they went to work on a project and they wanted to write about people who had short lives but whose existence changed history. Okay. And they considered everyone from Hitler to Robin Hood. Okay. Any thoughts about <laughs> I'm not loving this idea. Um, yeah. 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 Thankfully, they didn't choose either of those two. Yeah. But according to Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, Tim Rice had a particular affinity for Richard the Lionheart. Okay. Do you know who Richard the Lionheart I is? I don't. I didn't either. He is the first king of England who ruled toward the end of the 12th century. Okay. And so they wrote this 40-minute show called Come Back, Richard, Your Country Needs You. I have heard of this show. Yes, yes. yes. And it premiered at the City of London School. And according to Rice, it was an enormous flop. Okay. So didn't go well. So they went back to the drawing board. And they went back to their list of famous people. And they thought about their success with Joseph. Yeah. And how they'd had success with biblical material. Right. And so someone who had a short life, whose existence changed history from the Bible, who do you think of? Jesus Christ. You, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I was sure you were going to say Dorcas from <laughs> from the New Testament um, somewhere in there. I don't even remember Dorcas. I just tried to pick the most random yeah. person I could think of. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there are other biblical figures. Moses. But he, did live, he didn't live a short life, did he? No, I think yeah. he just lived for a good long time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he had to, like, get them through the 40 years in the desert. Right. So he's at least 40. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so they were hoping that lightning would strike twice. Um, and there was a lot of Christian-esque material at the time. And Tim Rice was inspired by a few lines from a Bob Dylan 1964 protest song uh, titled With God on Our Side. And a couple of the lyrics are, Through many a dark hour, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you. You have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. Mm. So it's really Bob Dylan's idea. It was really. <laughs> I don't know if Bob Dylan is getting royalties for yeah, the show, but not twenty five percent. He's not getting twenty. Not even close. <laughs> so um, they decided to test this concept with a single. They recorded a single, "Jesus Christ Superstar," and it was reduced by Brian. It was produce. Pro, what did I say? <laughs> You said reduced. <laughs> that is a Freudian slip if I've ever heard of it. That's as accurate as anything I will ever say on this show. Um, so it was produced by Brian Bowley um, of MCA UK. Okay. This single. And they had uh, um, Murray Head sang it, who'd recently left the UK production of Hair. And it was sung with the Trinidad singers. Andrew Lloyd Webber calls this the best version of Superstar in his mind. Okay. Um, it was released as a single in 1969, and it received strong reviews for its technical, musical, and lyrical virtuosity. Uh, but there was also some public outcry in the BBC about some of the lyrics. And it wasn't really a big hit as a single in the US or the UK at okay. the time. But some of the controversy 
and interest made Brian Bali interested enough in commissioning a double-length record. And so then Rice and Weber went to someplace in the UK, Stoke Edith in Herefordshire. Okay. I probably butchered every part of that. We apologize to all in the UK. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is not going to help relations. Um, to write the show and write the rest of the songs. Um, and of course, in the process, Andrew went back to some trunk songs because he was like, why... Why start new? Why waste a melody? <laughs> Why waste a melody if there's one yeah. already there? But we'll get to the trunk mm-hmm. songs. Um, and they wrote all the material. And they recorded a double-length album. And they went to the U.S. Uh, to launch it. And they were having this launch extravaganza at St. Peter's Church when they were contacted by a man named Robert Stigwood, who was a major force in British show business and then the manager of the Bee Gees at the time. Okay. And so... He was really interested in Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, and he bought out those other producers, Myers and Lund. Oh, okay. So, okay. so they're 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 out of it now. He bought them. So out. is Stigwood getting twenty five percent now? Well, they formed a new company okay. with the Paris Principles, titled Superstar Ventures Incorporated. What's the Paris Principles? Oh, sorry. <laughs> With with the pair with as principles, as okay. Principles. I was thinking so like fun. the Paris Accords or something. It was a really. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Magna Carta, yeah. the Paris Principles. Like this is like a like a well recognized like showbiz like agreement. You've never heard of the Paris Principles I've never heard before. Of the Paris principles made famous by Paris Hilton. Oh, okay. Her that principles. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so they were the principals. Tim Rice gotcha. and Lloyd were the principals of Superstar Ventures Incorporated, and there was a different deal. I don't actually totally know what the details are of this deal, um, of this of this financial deal, but um, they released the record in October 1970, and it was a smash hit in the U.S. I do know that. I know it was much bigger in the U.S. than in the U.K. Much bigger in the U.S. Uh, it topped the Billboard charts for, I think, in February and in May of 1971. Yeah, and I did read something about this that really upset me. <sighs> oh, I know what you read. You know, yeah, <laughs> I know what I, it is. Do you want to tell it? Um, from what I read as well, <laughs> it apparently was higher on the char- end of your charts than Carol King's Tapestry. Yes, that... <laughs> That devastated me. I'm so sorry. It's okay. To, to be fair, I tried to find the actual charts and yeah. I couldn't find them. Mm. So maybe this is like a Wikipedia lie. Someone is is uh, cooking the books at Wikipedia. <laughs> that's, that's it. Someone from real, real, really useful, group. really useful group is like going in and being like, yeah. "How can we make us sound even better?" Yeah. And they're taking down Carol King. I'm a huge Carol King fan. If anyone out there doesn't know, Anthony had a party. How many years ago was this? It was like 2015, I want to say. Oh my God, it's like eight years ago. That was a Carol King themed. It was a tribute. It was a. It was the 45th anniversary of Tapestry, and was... I performed not the whole album, but selects. Yeah, felt like the whole album. <laughs> <laughs> I also was Carol King for Halloween two years ago. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. So Anthony is a big I'm Carol a big King Carol fan. King fan. Yeah. I have not ever been. Andrew Lloyd Webber for Halloween. <laughs> not yet. I was Joseph for Halloween as a kid. That is not surprising. Yeah. I, and maybe this year will be your year to go as Lloyd Webber. Who Weber. knows? You would make a good Tim Rice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that'll be your Halloween costume. I'm sure everyone will get it. I'll be like, uh, oh my God, they're back together again. <laughs> spinning image. 
um, so um, this album became a big hit um, and it, it buoyed the single because the single hadn't been that popular before. And it got up to number 14 on the U.S. charts, the Jesus Christ Superstar single, the um, yeah, the Murray had the Murray had one. Yeah. Um, and the album netted the pair $50,000 each in music royalties in 1971. That's that's not bad. That yeah. wouldn't be bad today. Wouldn't be bad today. They went from two thousand pounds for the year to like fifty thousand uh, U.S. dollars, I believe. Which I don't know what the yeah, I don't know the conversion. Was, Good, whatever the case. Um, Rice later said that we were staggered by the success. MCA let us make a single, two unknown guys with a huge orchestra and a rock section, and with a rather controversial title, and it worked. I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. Major <laughs> We're aside, still talking about it today. We are. There's a podcast dedicated to it. <laughs> um, major aside, during this time, Andrew also met his first wife, oh, uh, Sarah. Sarah. Sarah Jane Tudor Hugel. Okay. Hugel. I don't. All okay. I know is her name is Sarah, and so is his next wife. His name. name is. Spoiler alert for <laughs> for, the, the Phantom episode. <laughs> for the Phantom episode. Um. So. They have this hit album, and a bunch of kind of bootleg productions started popping up all over the U.S. Uh, people that were like, "Oh, we're going to put on this show. We'll basically just take the record and we'll we'll perform the record, and we'll advertise it as Jesus Christ Superstar in concert." Mm. And producers were paying the standard licensing fee, arguing that they were presenting the songs of an album in concert rather than the standard box office royalty. Okay. And so Stigwood and Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice were getting paid a lot less because it was like viewed as like performing an album rather than performing right. a theatrical piece. Like I'm going to sing the new Rolling Stones song versus like I'm going to put on um, My Fair Lady. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> which is such an apples to apples comparison. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just same thing. Same so much Venn in that diagram. <laughs> so much Venn. Um, and so Stigwood injuncted... Okay, I think that's the word. He he, he had an injunction. Yeah, he, f- he something he well, decreed. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what any of these. My filed an injunction. Filed an injunction. There we go. Um, for most of these performances, and they received a judgment in their favor at the U.S. Court of Appeal Second Circuit, defining grand rights performances for the first time, and establishing that a complete dramatic work in concert, even without staging is a grand right. Andrew is obsessed with grand rights. <laughs> if you read his book, it's like every other phrase is grand rights. And he's like, I am the reason that grand rights are a thing, so you can all thank me for this. I mean, I suppose for composers it's it's valuable. Absolutely, absolutely. So they got they got what they deserved or what they felt they deserved. What they felt they deserved. And yeah. so And I, I wanna I'm we're joking, but I'm all for artist rights, of course. Oh absolutely. Yeah. We're gonna make <laughs> at least 2,000 pounds on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So we want every last pound of it. So Stigwood started producing uh, a touring production, like an official touring production across the U.S. with minimal scenery, a young cast, no stars, really sort of um, cheaply done. And I, I don't think that was the motivation behind it, but it was just a, a you know, a, a cheaper show to produce. Truck and bus tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was so successful that he immediately mounted another company to crisscross the first one across the U.S., so then we come to the Broadway production. Mm-hmm. Do you know who could have been the director of the Broadway production had Andrew Lloyd Webber's parents looked at his mail? Bette Midler. 
<laughs> um, how prince. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was trying to put together the the riddle. <laughs> the, at the, the riddle of the show. You're like the twenty twenty one insurrection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Mike Pence. Mike. <laughs> he would have loved to direct it. I bet. Can you, it would have been. He probably would have. Yeah. It would have had none of the homoerotic <laughs> sort of undertones or overtones of the show. It could have been Hell Prince. Yeah. Do you know this? I did know that. What do you know? Just that, really. And yeah. that, I think Andrew, like, was kicking himself for years and years. Absolutely. He would have loved to have Hell yeah. Prince direct it, especially with what happened with the Broadway show. But we'll get there. Okay. And Hell Prince wrote a, led, a letter to Andrew expressing interest in it that sat unread at his parents' house. And so didn't get to it for a while. I don't know how mad I would be at my parents if that happened. <laughs> like, I'm done with you. But also, I wouldn't want them to open my mail. So it's, you know what, like, there's it's a lose-lose. It is. Is, yeah. it, is that a catch-22? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a catch-22. What do you do? What do you do what in do that you case? Do? So they were able to book a production, a Broadway production at the Mark Hellinger Theater. Hellinger? Hellinger? I just I... need to read these names with confidence. And... I will decide how they're pronounced. Just kidding. I'm so sorry. Please correct me. Mark Hellinger Theater. Um, and the casting for Jesus Christ was Jeff Fenholt. Judas was Ben Vereen. Mm-hmm. Um, Pontius Pilate was Barry Denon. Uh, Mary Magdalene was Yvonne Elliman. Um, that was just some of the cast. And some of them like, had been on the recording. Right. Like Barry Denon, Yvonne. Yvonne. Yeah, they were both on the recording. And so now on the first day of rehearsals, Andrew Lloyd Webber was contacted by top agent Norman Weiss and asked to audition a new client he had just signed who had recently been performing in some gay bathhouses and whom he thought would make a splash as Mary Magdalene. Who is this performer? That's Bette Midler. That's Bette Midler. Yes. And Andrew Lloyd Webber agreed to hear her as a courtesy. And when he listened to Bette Midler saying, I don't know how to love him, he described it as mind-blowing, like a mind-blowing performance and a performance without equal. But he said he was committed to Yvonne. Mm -hmm. And so Yvonne was going to do it. And he later said that it would have been a waste of Bette Midler's talents talents to be in this production. That's very humble of him. Well, he was he was dissing the production, <laughs> yeah, not the, the role. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and around this time, the album reached the number one spot on the Billboard charts. The album sold three million copies by the time the show opened. Okay. So it was, yeah, it was a phenomenon. Big hit, yeah. And by the time the show opened, the show had the largest Broadway advance in history of a million dollars. Oh my gosh! And then the show opened on October twelfth, nineteen seventy one, to poor reviews. Yeah. You know, this production was directed by Tom O'Horgan. Mm-hmm. Um, there was originally supposed to be another director. Oh, I can't remember his name, but he was coming from opera. Mm. Angel Lee Weber was really excited about him. And then I believe this man got sick and got bought out of his contract. Okay. Um, not by not by Andrew, but by, yeah. I think, Stigwood. Yeah. Um, and so it was not the success that later Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals would be, though it did run 720 performances. That's good, actually. Right? A substantial yeah. number. But I think they thought, considering the advanced sales, yeah. considering how much... Uh, how many people had bought the album and how much interest there was in the album, that this was, like, below expectations. Makes sense. And... Some of the reviews, the reviews were uh, generally mixed to scathing. Andrew Floyd Weber, <laughs> reviewing the production himself in a New York Times interview, I think around the time that it opened, said, quote, let's just say that we don't think this production is the definitive one. Okay. End quote. Um, he also said, well, it's not the way I envisioned it. I saw it more as an intimate drama of three to four people. I do think the music has suffered a little. 
It was a very like visual kind of spectacle kind of production. Right? It was yeah. a very visual spectacle production, yeah. and a lot of the visual and spectacle nature, just the critics and Andrew Lloyd Webber did not like. It's not the way he wanted mm-hmm. it to happen. Um, and he spoke out against his own show pretty much right away. Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> well, maybe it was the first time. Wouldn't be the last time. Very well said. Um, so Walter Kerr in the New York Times in a review titled, A Critic Loves Likes the Opera, Loathes the Production, mm-hmm. said, The title page of the program for Jesus Christ Superstar at the Mark Hellinger stresses that Tom O'Horgan has not only directed the production, but has conceived it. It is not an immaculate conception. Ooh. <laughs> I love reviews. Yeah. And especially the way that critics just yeah. go for a punny sort of right. evisceration. He set himself up for that one. He did. He did. And he said, and kind of agreeing with Andrew on this, all that has to be done with it is put it on the stage baldly. Baldness is very much of its essence. And, after establishing a few simple traffic directions, let it sing for itself. Instead, Mr. O'Horgan has adorned it. Oh my God, how he has adorned it. So, what you were, like what you were saying, there was just so much sort of spectacle, and um, there was also some controversy, which, I don't know if this is like thoroughly 1970s sort of homophobia, or if it was in poor taste, but King Herod, I believe, was a drag queen in the performance, and Mm. there was some criticism of that, which I'm not apt to give these reviewers the benefit of the doubt around that one. So I don't know if some of it was just some of the homophobia, I don't know what else to call it, of the time, that they they didn't like that sort of direction, or if Mm -hmm. it just wasn't done well. But um, Clive Barnes in the New York Times described it as brilliant but cheap. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious about, like, what that combination means to him. Yeah, yeah. When I think of it... I, I guess think... it could be visually brilliant. Yeah, but, like, looking cheap. Yeah. Kind of like... Like a Chuck E. Cheese. Like... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of. I was actually thinking of, like, like a like a Trump hotel or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Where it looks... It's gilded. That, right. That... Um, I'll just say, I think one final. John Simon said, "What we get at the Mark Hellinger is close to, is closer to rock bottom than rock opera." Mm. He also said, "A mediocre score with less than mediocre lyrics and an overinflated megalo megalo megal." You got this. In an overinflated megalomaniacal production. Wow. Which, for all it's going off like a dozen Roman candles in 12 simultaneously diverging directions, cannot hold a candle to a modest, innocently imaginative, and truly felt little musical like Godspell. Ooh. Mm Mm-hmm. Pitting creators against creators. Um, The New York Daily News thought it was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Great. should should throw that in there. Yeah. There were some defenders. So it was not considered a, an artistic success in any way. Yeah. And it wasn't even the sort of financial success they would have expected. Yeah. The uh, producer quickly mounted an L.A. production, which, according to Andrew Lloyd Webber, was far better. Okay. Which made me think about how Andrew Lloyd Webber's preferences for L.A. productions of his shows. Yeah. Thinking of... Sunset. Sunset. Yeah. And it also taught him a valuable lesson about, okay, when it's not working, start something new or start a new production of the same show and allow the different productions to have different creative teams so that if one 
show isn't working, you'll find one that does work and then that can kind of become the blueprint. Yeah, kind of race, a horse race against yourself. Basically, exactly. So, then they opened the London production, which was much more successful. Mm -hmm. Opened at the Palace Theater in London in 1972 and the production was directed by Jim Sharman, who would later direct Rocky Horror Picture Show. Okay, And it was a success. It was the longest running West End musical before being overtaken by... Evita. Good guess. Phantom of the Opera. Another good guess. Starlight Express. <laughs> Before we go over. Cats. To- yes, cats. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Before being overtaken by cats, and it ran for over eight years, having 3,358 performances. Nice. So when Dmitry Shostakovich yes. saw the production and some would argue he's the greatest composer of the 20th century. When he saw Superstar in London shortly before he died, and he saw it twice on successive evenings. Wow. He later lamented that he could not have written something similar himself, admiring particularly the writing of a core rock band orchestration overlain with full symphonic strings, brass, and mm-hmm. woodwind. So he was very enamored with it. Wow, that's some high praise. I know. Yeah. Now, he may have been senile at the time now. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I'm sure he was of sound mind. So, so the London production did really well. Yeah. And then we get to the movie. Which is what we're going to be focusing our talk about. Today. Which is what we're going to be focusing our talk about. And the movie was announced around the same time as the Broadway production. They announced the making of this movie musical and it was directed by Anthony's favorite director. <laughs> not my favorite director. <laughs> but I do like some of his other movies. Directed by Norman Jewison. Um, who also directed Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof. And Moonstruck. Yes. And he had found himself both curiously moved and flooded with exciting visual images upon first hearing the album. I believe he was actually given the album by Barry Denon when they were okay. filming Fiddler on the Roof, because Barry had like a, I think a small role oh, does he? in Fiddler. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. And Tim Rice first attempted the screenplay and he wrote something that was like a Bun Hur style epic. Mm. Interesting. Which you saw the movie. Would you describe it as a Ben Stur- Ben no. Hur style? Well, I haven't like, seen Ben Hur, but there were no like Coliseum scenes. Or no chariot like races. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, so Jewison's vision was different. Um, he wanted to devise a film idiom as hip and contemporary as the rock opera itself. And he developed a pastiche approach that kind of blended sort of the biblical times um, with more of a modern sort of influence, Mm -hmm. as we can see through Mm -hmm. a lot of it, and as we'll talk about. And kind of developed it, the the whole framing of it um, was as like a theater troupe arriving in Israel and kind of putting on the passion play, like putting on a show. And that was kind of his vision for this. Now, not only was Tim Rice fired from the movie... Andrew Lloyd Webber was also fired from the movie. Oh, wow. And he'd been fired from the orchestrations in favor of... Well, I know it was directed by Andre Previn. Like, the orchestra was conducted by Andre Previn. Did he do the orchestrations as well? He did. Okay. Famously known as... Oh, my God. Whose husband? Mia Farrow's. Mia Farrow's husband. Yeah. Thank you. Also, Dory Previn's husband. I love... Justice for Dory Previn. I love Dory Previn. I'm not Dory Previn. That is a whole other podcast. Um, Great episode about it on You You Must Remember This. If anyone is interested in that, it's a great podcast about old Hollywood. So highly recommended. Um, And Andre Previn was later nominated for an Oscar for these orchestrations, which... I'm sure Andrew loved that. It was his favorite. Yeah. (laughs) He was so happy that happened. Um, 
And in the end, Joosan used more than 20 locations um, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, Nazareth, various places in, uh, in Israel. And not a single frame from Superstar was shot on a soundstage. Wow. Which is pretty... I suppose the early 70s, they were getting away from sound stages, but you think about even musicals of the late 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this was around the studio system was falling apart too. Yeah. But, you know, think about like Funny Girl a couple years mm-hmm. prior or Hello Dolly, mm-hmm. which I think opened in 69 or 70. It's all sound stages. Yeah. Um, that big old parade mm-hmm. that passes by, all sound Not stage. on the real street. Not on, <laughs> on the real street. Um, so this movie wasn't a particular success as well. Um, though you might think differently, but I think we'll get into it. By the numbers, it wasn't yeah. uh, it wasn't a huge success. And some of their ideas in doing it, they like some of the sequences were set in advance, but a lot of the dance numbers were worked out on the spot. Oh, wow. They'd kind of get there, they'd feel out the environment, and then they would kind of decide what they're going to do. And it kind of was developed based on kind of the landscape and the feel of the place. I was wondering as I was watching it, like, how did they scout these locations? Like, how did they find this mountain? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Were you like, this feels like chaos? How did they find this cave? (laughs) How did they find this cave? And then they found the cave, and then they're like, this seems great. Let's do this. This song, yeah. The cave is telling me to, like, Mm-hmm. have them move like this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So the cast um, had some repeat customers. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we had Yvonne Elliman again yes. as Mary, and we had... Barry Dunnan. Barry Dunnan was back. Um, we had uh, a different uh, Judas and a different Jesus mm-hmm. than had been, I believe, opened um, the Broadway production. Or yes. Right. Ted Neely um, was Jesus, and he played the lead in the Broadway production of Hair. Okay. And then uh, Carl Anderson was cast as Judas. And I think he had replaced Ben Vereen I think that's at some correct. point. Yeah. yeah, I think that's correct. Um, Do we have more history to go through? No. Okay. Then why don't we take a little break and then we'll come back. Adam. Yes, Anthony? I know that there's always some Andrew Lloyd Webber or something that's giving you life. <laughs> I just can't get enough of him, you know? What is giving you life this week? That's a good question. You know, I was shocked that in 2022, my Spotify wrapped didn't have, I don't think, any Andrew Lloyd Webber in it. What? And what about you, Anthony? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I don't use Spotify, so I don't have a Spotify wrapped. Oh. But I did have an Apple Music, whatever their version is. Cord. Uncord. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what it's called. Um, I was kind of shocked by my year-end review, my year-end report. Was was it shocking? I didn't realize I listened to this song as much as I did. What was the song? (laughs) It was... It was As If We Never Said Goodbye, Hmm. sung by by Lori Beachman. By Lori... Not Patty Lupone. Not Patty Lupone. Not even Glenn Close. Not, not even Barbara not Streisand. Barbara Streisand. But Laurie Laurie Beachman. Beachman. The late Laurie Beachman. The late and great Laurie Beachman. Mm-hmm. Well, after we filmed or recorded our Joseph episode, mm-hmm. and I I do get a Google alert for Angela Weber. <laughs> Naturally. And it Who doesn't? Sh- right. And it showed up one day that some new a new recording or like a new 
streaming release of this Lori Beachman and Julie Weber mm. album was available. Oh, a whole album. A whole album of mm. Julie Weber sung by Lori Beachman. And so I started listening to it and the first song was As If We Never Said Goodbye. Mm. And something about it, I just kept hitting re- repeat on mm. that song. Mm. <laughs> Wait, and just to get this right, so you discovered this toward the end of 2022. <laughs> yes! Like in the last couple of months. And it was your number it one. It was my number one song. For the whole year. For the whole year. <laughs> Overtaking. Beyonce, Adele. Wow. Cheryl Crow made a big appearance <laughs> on my list because of the Cheryl Crow documentary on Showtime. And oh I went God. down a big Cheryl Crow. Um, As you should. Yeah. And then um, I also had a big Mary Chapin Carpenter resurgence because I saw her perform this summer. But overtook all of those people and Lori Beachman. Lori Beachman, baby. Number one. Number number one one for Anthony. Anthony is Lori Beachman's number one fan. (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Which, to be fair, who doesn't love Lori Beachman? I mean, you can't really go wrong with her, although you maybe want to skip her recording of Starlight Express. (laughs) Your favorite musical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. (laughs) Um, so would you say that's what's giving you life this week or do you say something else is giving you life you know yeah, yeah. it was Lori Beachman giving me life she was giving you life Lori Beachman as if we never said goodbye yeah giving you life this week and for many months past. for many months and may- maybe years to come who knows maybe years to come yeah. Spotify or Apple Music Uncord for the decade <laughs> Lori Beachman <laughs> why do you call it Uncord <laughs> It's just like, well, one's unwrapped and it's an uh, apple, you know, like an apple has a core. Now I want to know what it's called. <laughs> oh, C-O-R-E-D. Yeah. I was thinking C-H-O-R-D. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> C-O-R-E-D, uncord. What's giving you life this week? You know what? There is a version of Jesus Christ Superstar oh. that I believe came out in the last year, um, a studio cast of all women. Oh, interesting. Performing the score. Um, and so we have uh, Cynthia Revo oh, as uh, Mary Magdalene. Oh, great. Um, we have um, Shoshana Bean as Judas. We have Orfe. Is that how you pronounce her name? I, I think so. We have Morgan James as Jesus Christ. And honestly, I think in particular, Shoshana Bean as Judas is giving me life. Oh, her voice already lends itself to sort of like a rock. She can just do anything. She can sing anything and do no wrong. And so I think listening particularly to some of the Judas numbers with Shoshana really um, gets me. And to hear the Mary Magdalene songs sung in tune (laughs) by Cynthia Erivo just really fills me. I really am enjoying that that recording and just to hear it sung by all women. So check it out. Highly recommend it. All right, thanks. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see what we're, what's giving us life next week. Can't wait. Maybe another Laurie Beachman number. There's some other really good ones on there. So maybe we'll find the song. Excited to tell you about. I'm it. so excited. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that's a wrap on our history episode. Wait, Adam. What? I forgot to, we forgot to talk about the, um, the insurrection. How does, what does that have to do with Jesus Christ Superstar? We did forget to talk about the insurrection. Okay. So obviously this has to do with more recent productions than it has to do with the original. Um, but there was an actor, a stage actor named James Beeks, who was arrested in November 2021 while on tour portraying Judas in a road company of Jesus Christ Superstar. 
He had traveled to Washington, D.C. on January 6th after reading some online messages posted by the right-wing group Oath Keepers. Oh, so he was there for the insurrection. Okay. Wow. Yeah. He was later acquitted with the judge saying that there's a lack of evidence that he knowingly took part in the planning of the attack. But yeah, this actor was at the insurrection. So that's the connection. And then was he put back into the show? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where James Beek's career is now. There has to be cause to terminate an equity contract. So so not sure. Not sure where he is now. If anyone knows where James Beek's is now, let us know. Or don't. (laughs) Or don't. Also, um, James Beeks is not to be confused with James Vanderbeek of Dawson's Dawson's Creek Creek fame. So we love James Vanderbeek. You do. (laughs) I love James Vanderbeek. I I just never watched Dawson's Creek. I have I have I have nothing against James Vanderbeek. Although I love Michelle Williams. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, do you love her in we're not gonna keep any of this stuff. Do you do you love her in (laughs) in the Pasig and Paul musical Greatest Showman? I've still never seen it. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wrap on our history episode. If you're listening to this in real time and not in 2025 after Anthony and Adam have become famous podcasters slash influencers slash thoughts, <laughs> we'll be dropping our recap episode in two weeks. So before then... Andrew Lloyd Webber thoughts. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber thoughts. Oh, God. Would, are we the only two? Is there any other competition? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> um, so, so before then, we definitely encourage you to watch the 1973 movie of Jesus Christ Superstar. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.